Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In this episode, I'll bring you up to date on our latest online selections of important peer-reviewed research and reviews for Part 2 of our July-August 2019 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Transdermal drug delivery is a viable alternative to taking medication orally for the treatment of many diseases. Advances in patch technology have led to higher numbers of medications being approved for use in transdermal form. This route of administration has several innate advantages that can benefit many patient populations, including those with central nervous system disorders. In this review, the authors provide a brief overview of the history of transdermal medications, the advantages and disadvantages of transdermal formulations, and the challenges and opportunities that exist for use of transdermal treatments in psychiatry. The inherent benefits gained through the use of patches, such as reduced dosing frequency, effective control of plasma drug concentrations, improved tolerability, ability to visually check compliance, and avoidance of first-pass metabolism may solve many of the outstanding treatment issues that patients with psychiatric illnesses can face with traditional oral or sublingual formulations. Established transdermal treatments that are currently used to treat various psychiatric diseases have shown that this route of administration can provide unique benefits. The authors discuss patch formulations in development for patients with schizophrenia and the outline hypothetical patient profiles to help providers ascertain how transdermal treatments for schizophrenia may fill unmet needs for selected patients. The authors conclude that having additional treatment choices in terms of drug delivery and formulations will help address individual patient needs, values, and preferences. Anxiety and depression are prevalent during pregnancy. While treatment recommendations and prescribing have shifted from benzodiazepines towards newer antidepressants, benzodiazepines continue to be used alone or with antidepressants. However, it is unknown if benzodiazepine use is associated with an increased risk of congenital malformations. One of this issue's CME offerings is a systematic review and meta-analysis that was conducted to assess the risk of congenital malformations following exposure to benzodiazepines alone and in combination with antidepressants. Multiple databases were searched to identify English-language cohort studies with prospectively collected data. Over 20,000 records were screened, 56 studies were assessed for eligibility, and 8 studies were included. The authors found that exposure to benzodiazepines, including during the first trimester, was not associated with an increased risk of congenital malformations or cardiac malformations. However, benzodiazepine and antidepressant exposure together in pregnancy was associated with a significantly increased risk of congenital malformations with an odds ratio of 1.4. Pregnant patients and their clinicians are faced with complex decisions regarding treatment. 
This study provides up-to-date, pregnancy-specific information to help clinicians guide their patients in decision-making. Use of benzodiazepines alone during pregnancy does not appear to be associated with malformations. However, since the risk of congenital malformations may be increased when benzodiazepines are used together with antidepressants, the authors advise that they should be used only with caution. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the July-August table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Suicidal ideation occurs frequently among patients with depression and is difficult to treat. However, little is known regarding its development and response during antidepressant treatment. This trial, funded by the European Commission in Lundbeck, included 800 patients with moderate to severe major depressive disorder. Patients were treated with escitalopram or nortriptyline for 12 weeks and were assessed weekly for their level of suicidal ideation. Researchers integrated a suicidal ideation score from three rating scales and identified the trajectories of suicidal ideation. They found five distinct trajectories. The largest class, consisting of 53%, showed no significant level of suicide ideation during the 12 weeks. However, one of five patients experienced a course with high or fluctuating suicidal ideation. 10% in the persistent high class had suicidal ideation throughout the 12 weeks. The 26% in the fast response class started at a high level of suicidal ideation but responded quickly, while another 10% in two distinct classes had a fluctuating response. The 20% of patients with high or fluctuating suicidal ideation had a high baseline level and responded worse to antidepressants in general, as indicated by lower remission and response rates. Previous suicide attempts, higher mood symptom severity, and living alone at treatment initiation were associated with a high or fluctuating course of suicidal ideation. Importantly, the authors did not find a subgroup that experienced treatment-emergent suicidal ideation. These findings indicate a very heterogeneous course of suicidal ideation in depression despite pharmacologic treatment. The authors conclude that clinicians should place specific focus on individuals with previous suicide attempts and those who have a high severity of mood symptoms. They should monitor these patients for low response on suicidal ideation measures. Numerous studies have established an increased risk of heart disease among people with bipolar disorder as well as premature onset. Internationally, there are high rates of metabolic syndrome among middle-aged adults with bipolar disorder. Nonetheless, little is known about heart disease risk among younger persons who have bipolar disorder. The authors of another CME offering in this issue present a retrospective analysis based on data from the Course and Outcome of Bipolar Youth Study that was recently conducted to examine this topic. The study included 162 adolescents and young adults and looked at metabolic syndrome measures as well as psychiatric symptoms, comorbidity, and treatment. The results confirmed that there are increased rates of metabolic syndrome among younger people with bipolar disorder. 
In addition, more persistent depression symptoms were associated with increased risk of metabolic syndrome. So, what are the clinical implications? The authors note that it is never too early to integrate a cardiovascular focus when treating patients with bipolar disorder. They also point out when treating depression, we generally focus on the immediate benefit, whereas when treating cardiovascular risk factors, we usually focus on benefits that arise decades later. The study findings encourage us to consider that there may be long-term heart-related benefits of treating depression and near-term mood-related benefits of optimizing heart health. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the July-August table of contents at psychiatrist.com. Opioids and benzodiazepines are commonly co-prescribed, but the risk of death associated with this practice is unknown. In this study, sponsored by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the authors estimated all-cause mortality, overdose death, and circulatory-related death risk among patients who were newly co-prescribed opioids and benzodiazepines as compared to patients newly prescribed benzodiazepines only, opioids only, or neither medication class. This retrospective cohort study included patients diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder who received VA health care between October 2009 and 2011. A total of 4,369 patients who were newly co-prescribed opioids and benzodiazepines were matched one-to-one using propensity scores with patients newly prescribed benzodiazepines only opioids only, or neither medication. One-year total and cause-specific mortality was assessed by hazard ratios, adjusted for propensity score, age, psychiatric and medical comorbidity, and daily medication dose. One year after medication start, all-cause mortality among patients co-prescribed opioids and benzodiazepines was 1.5 times higher than for those prescribed benzodiazepines only. It was 1.8 times higher than for those prescribed opioids only, and 1.9 times higher than for those prescribed neither medication. Risk of overdose death among those with co-prescriptions was 2.6 times higher than for those receiving benzodiazepines only, 2.6 times higher than for those receiving opioids only, and 9.2 times higher than for those receiving neither medication. Patients with co-prescriptions experienced a 1.8-fold increased risk of circulatory-related deaths relative to those receiving neither medication. This study underscores the short-term risk of co-prescribing opioids and benzodiazepines and supports educating patients and providers about the mortality risk of co-prescribing. Synthetic cannabinoids, commonly known as K2 or spice, have been used recreationally in the United States since 2009 and are accompanied by severe intoxication and adverse mental health effects such as psychosis and agitation. These compounds are similar to cannabis in their action, but have greater potency and efficacy. There is increasing evidence that women are more sensitive to the effects of cannabis, 
but no study has been done on the potential sex differences in the effects of synthetic cannabinoid use. To explore this question, the authors of the present study conducted a retrospective review of digital charts of patients admitted to a dual diagnosis unit in downtown New York City. They compared the psychiatric presentations of patients who reported use of synthetic cannabinoids and cannabis between men and women. A total of 983 charts were reviewed. 162 subjects were identified as recent synthetic cannabinoid users, 76% male, based on their self-report, and 292 subjects were identified as cannabis users, 67% male, based on their urine toxicology. The findings showed that, in general, synthetic cannabinoid users had higher risk of psychotic presentations and agitation compared to the control or non-cannabinoid using group. The rate of psychosis was similar between men and women among synthetic cannabinoid users, but women were significantly more agitated than men. This report is the first on sex differences in the clinical presentations of synthetic cannabinoid use, with women showing more severe symptoms, which may suggest their higher sensitivity to synthetic cannabinoids. A recent study examined hip fracture risk in the context of depression and antidepressant treatment in the year before antidepressant initiation, as well as the year after. The authors found a significantly increased risk of fracture in all of the time points studied during these two years. In a new installment of his Clinical and Practical Psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade considers this study and the role of confounding by indication in the increased risk of fracture in depressed people. In another column, he again turns our attention toward the importance of study methodology as he looks at the link found in a recent study between anticholinergic drugs and dementia risk. He delineates four important methodological considerations that should inform our interpretation of the study results. The full text of these columns is freely available online. Please visit the July-August Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. You can view the newest online offerings from Part 2 of the July-August 2019 issue on the JCP website at psychiatrist.com. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the publisher's podcast, Your Plays for Psychiatry Soundbites.